Romans 13. On November the 30th, we have a special guest coming to speak to us on a Wednesday evening at 6 o'clock before Awana kicks off. The reason we're doing that is because we want as many people in the room as possible. So we'll be eating dinner that evening and listening to him. He is a missionary in overseas, an international missionary. He works for the company. Uh, the reason I say that is because he is high security. And so we cannot give, divulge too much information about him, but John, Daniel, and I met him. John already knew him, had a history with him, but we met him in Athens, Greece, uh, when we went on the exploratory mission trip in, in April, and he is coming to speak to us about things that we can do to minister to the refugees who are in flooding into Athens, Greece, and flooding into Europe. The refugees are the image of God, and they need the gospel as much as we need the gospel, and we need to pray about how we can strategize to minister to them even as we minister to our own community. He will be here November the 30th at 6 o'clock. So we'll be eating, listening to him speak so that then at 6.30 uh, the Awana leaders can minister to our Awana, our, our children. The reason we're not doing it at any other time is he's booked. He's here on sabbatical. And if we did it at 7 Many of our Awana workers would not be able to hear what he has to say. Plus, I would love for the children to be able to hear it as well. And so even as we go into Lottie Moon season, you can, you can hear from someone who benefits from the Lottie Moon offering. And prayerfully, it will incite you to give sacrificially to the, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 100% of those, those funds go on the ground so that the nations might be glad in Jesus. Well, if you would, look with me in Romans chapter 13. We're looking at verses 1 to 7 today. As you know, if you're visiting with us, I rarely, in fact, I can't remember an example except last week uh, where I, take a, I took a break from preaching through the book. Now, I do oftentimes uh, on Mother's Day or Father's Day. But last week we looked at Romans 4 because it was the day before all Hallows Eve, what we celebrate, Reformation Day. And today we look at Romans 13 as we think about a biblical view of government, not to get political, um, because I know that there are godly people, wonderful people, even in this room, who, who are on both sides of these, of these positions, or many of these positions. And the reality is our hope is not in, Roman, uh, in human government. Uh, our, our hope is in the one we sang about this morning. And prayed to. Our hope is in one who's been a, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. No matter who gets elected on Tuesday, they can't put King Jesus back in the tomb. And that is our hope. But the Bible does speak about Roman human government. And so in, as far as that goes, we need to consider what the Bible has to say about it. If you would look with me in Romans 13 verse 1, Paul says, Let every person be subject... To the governing authorities. Now that's civil government. For there is no authority except from God. 
And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now think about this. He's writing to people who are under the rule of Nero. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, tending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We see four things from this text. Government rulers are appointed by God. Government rulers exist to punish evildoers. Government rulers exist to reward those who do good. Government rulers are servants of God. That's human government. Anything beyond that goes beyond what Scripture teaches us about government. Let's pray. Father God, we... We thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that we can come to you on the eve of this election as a hopeful people. Our hope is bound up in heaven at the right hand of the Most High. And nothing can change that on earth. And Father, we pray as we come to this text that you would teach us. Father, these issues in our culture have unnecessarily... and in many ways, tragically divided even Christians. And I pray, Lord, that even if there are those here today who disagree with me on certain things, I pray that it would not be divisive because we are called to be unified in the gospel. And I pray that that gospel would unify us today, that we would keep the unity of spirit, the spirit of Christ through the bond of peace. And we ask this today. Teach us. Edit my plans. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, many believe that this election cycle is the most vicious and unsavory election season in American history. That may be the case. But I want you to consider the very first real competitive campaign for president in the year 1800. John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson. John Adams' ads said this of Thomas Jefferson. If he's elected, female chastity will be routinely violated. Murder, robbery, rape, and incest will be openly taught and practiced. Then in 1828, John Quincy Adams, John Adams' son said this of Andrew Jackson. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer and a drunken gambler. So there's nothing new under the sun. 
Now, in the United States since 1954, the IRS has had regulations that prohibits pastors and churches from explicitly endorsing a candidate or any kind of platform or party. It's called the 501c3. The the amendment was pushed by the senator at that time, Lyndon B. Johnson, because he was irritated at two nonprofit organizations who had tried to block his candidacy to uh, to the Senate. And the penalty for violating this policy is an is that we lose our tax exemption status as a church. Now, churches violate that all the time. We certainly don't want to do that. Actually, I think that this amendment is beneficial to the church. Simply for this reason, that it kind of serves like bumpers at a bowling alley. If you go with a kid to the bowling alley, you have those bumpers set up to keep you from, you know... Bowling your ball into the into the alley, into the gutter, and those those bumpers keep you in the center. If we were free to endorse a candidate and talk about this, it's likely all we would do. And meanwhile, no one would have their hearts changed because only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change a heart. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change a culture. And yet, we are called to teach on the moral issues. Some of the issues in politics are merely irritants. You and I can disagree on environmental issues. We can disagree on how much or how little we should be taxed. Uh, Those are things that are merely irritants. But there are real moral issues in any campaign. And what we can do without violating this 501 C3 is to speak about not a specific candidate, but we can name a candidate, candidate A, for instance, and candidate B, and leave it to you to discern what those particular, who those uh, particular candidates are. And so that's what we want to do today. As we approach this election, the consensus in the main is that neither candidate has the kind of character correspondent to what we look for in the President of the United States. Now, there would be some who disagree with that, but I think that in the main, that is the case. And that is unfortunate. But the reality is, one of these two will be elected come Tuesday. It may be weeks before we even know which one, but one of the two will be elected. And so in my estimation, and some would disagree with me, in my estimation, the question to answer is not which candidate has the character that we would most embrace. Because I don't think most people believe either one has the character we would embrace, but which platform most consistently corresponds to what the Bible says about the role of government. 
And most specifically, Romans chapter 13. Now, in chapter 12, Paul has established four relationships that Christians have in the world. We have a relationship with God. He establishes that in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And then he speaks to our relationship with ourselves, verses 3 to 8. And then in verses 9 to 16, he speaks to our relationship with each other in the local church. And then verses 17 to 21, he speaks to the relationship we have with our enemies. Enemies because there are those who are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here in chapter 13, he develops another. Our relationship to the civil government. That's why you can't avoid politics in the pulpit because the Bible speaks about government in the scriptures. So look with me in verses 1 to 3. We see the authority of the civil government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So Paul begins here with a very clear command. Everyone, every person must be subject to the governing authorities. Submit to the governing authorities. Now, amazingly, as I said earlier, Paul is writing this when Caesar... The Caesar of the day is Nero, the very one who's going to have him put to death. But then here he gives the reason for that call to submission. The state's authority is derived from God, which he gives three times. Three times he tells us this in verse 1 and verse 2. Paul is clearly in line with the Old Testament. That God is the one who rules over kings. Psalm 22 verse 28. Kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Do you get that? Kingship belongs to the Lord, Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. Don't you find that hopeful? There is absolutely no reason to fret. Because our God, our Messiah, our Lord rules over all human kings, over all human governments. In Daniel chapter 2, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. In Daniel chapter 4, three times Alone, you read these words, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. I find that extraordinarily comforting. In light of God's sovereignty, now keep in mind, God is not made up of parts. Sometimes we think God is part love and part wisdom, and sometimes his love kicks in, sometimes his wisdom kicks in, sometimes his, his wrath kicks in. God is not made up of parts. The theological term is the simplicity of God. So he is sovereign, but his sovereignty over all kings, over all governments, is birthed by an infinitely wise sovereignty, an infinitely just sovereignty. 
an infinitely loving and gracious and holy and righteous sovereignty. That's the one who's ruling. That's the one who's ruling even on Tuesday. There's no reason to fret. No reason to fret. If we fret, it's because we believe God's going to get it wrong. That's the problem with fretting. That's the problem with anxiety. Anxiety is fundamentally believing that God is going to get it wrong. He never gets it wrong. In light of God's sovereignty over civil government, look with me in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, this does not mean that all of the Nero's and all of the Herods of the New Testament times and all of the the Stalins and Mussolini's and Hitler's and Saddam Hussein's of our time are not responsible for their wickedness. They are. Nor does it mean that God is responsible for their wickedness or their behavior. He isn't. Nor does it mean that their authority is in no circumstances whatsoever to be resisted. Paul simply means that all human authority is derived from God's authority. Now, when I think about God's authority, I think about the fact that his authority is one of his lordship attributes. That's what it means that he is God, the Lord. He, he has all authority. And so if all human government is derived from God's authority, that means he never leaves his throne unmanned. His throne has never been unmanned. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the year Uzziah died. Now, why would Isaiah tell us that? Because Uzziah was one of the great kings. He didn't finish strong. Died of leprosy. Because it says he was marvelously helped until he became strong. Pride. Pride is epidemic with rulers. But in the year Uzziah died, 740 A.D., he, or B.C., he, he ruled from 800 to 700, 60 years. 740, uh, 800 to 740 B.C. In the year Uzziah died, Isaiah was caught up into heaven. And it says, I saw a throne and someone was seated on it. It appeared that God was no longer in control. The Davidic king was dead. And then Isaiah saw reality as it is. I saw a throne. There was someone sitting on it. It's Yahweh. Now John 12 tells us the glory he saw was the glory of the Son of God. That's another sermon for another day. But in Revelation 4, same thing. Domitian's ruling. It looks hopeless for Christians. Christians are being persecuted left and right. All hell's breaking loose on the church. John, who's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, the other disciples have been crucified, put to death, martyred for their faith. And he was caught up into heaven. What did he see? He saw a throne. And he saw someone sitting on it. So even in the midst of paganism and wickedness and persecution, God's throne was not unmanned. And that's what we're trusting in. Paul simply means all human authority is derived 
from God's authority, including presidents. That's exactly what Jesus said to Pilate. You would have no authority over me if it were not given you from above. John 19. You get that? You would have no authority, Pilate, over me if my father had not given you that authority. Your authority is not inherent. It's a derived authority. And incidentally, that very authority was used to crucify the Son of God. The most heinous evil in the history of the world. We see evil in our culture. It pales in comparison to the evil of the cross. We've seen some 60 million babies put to death since 1973. It pales in comparison to the evil of the cross. And yet we recognize in the most heinous act in history, the greatest work of redemption came forth. And so God used the, the wickedness of a man like Herod and Pilate, men like them, to bring about the most glorious event in the history of the world. His throne is never unmanned. It's never unmanned. You remember that. Now, having called us to submission, Paul now is going to warn against rebellion as he has alluded to in verse 2, our rebellion to the civil government. Look with me in verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That's, that's an authority God has given them. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? It's a good thing that we have human authority. Can you imagine a world without it? It's called anarchy. The reason we need human government is because... It is God's expression of common grace to restrain evil. That's what he's saying here. Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval. Of course, Paul recognizes this is not universally the case. He knew about the injustice, the unjust condemnation of Jesus Christ. And if all the courts were just... He wouldn't have needed to appeal to Caesar in Acts chapter 25. In fact, Paul himself had been unjustly beaten by Roman officials. So he's clearly laying out the ideal here. But what if the government in question is the opposite of the ideal? Is Paul's demand for submission absolute? No. If the government abuses the authority that, has, that it has derived from God, the answer is no. Submission is not demanded. We're to submit up to the point, in other words, where obedience to the state, to the civil authorities would mean disobedience to God. That's why Hobby Lobby says if these, these lawsuits are carried out, they'll do away with the company because they refuse to obey the civil government against their conscience. We see this time and time in the scriptures. When Pharaoh set forth that edict, ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn 
boys, what did the midwives do? They refused to kill those boys. When Nebuchadnezzar issued the edict, edict to, uh, that everyone would bow down to his image, there were three he refused. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Darius made a decree that for the next 30 days, everyone in his kingdom would worship him, Daniel refused to bow the knee. And when the Sanhedrin commanded the apostles to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they said in Acts 5.29, we will obey God rather than man. But that's a tragic place to get to. Why is that? Well, because as we see in verses 4 to 7, the government is God's minister. God's minister. Look with me in verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do good, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God. Do you get that? He is the servant of God. The civil authorities is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God. Tending to this very thing. Three times we see the authorities, the civil government is the ministers of God. Three times. Just as we saw three times the government is ordained of God. Three times we see the government is the minister of God. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What then is the ministry that God has entrusted to the government? It concerns good and evil. The Bible says the function of government is to punish people who violate the law. To restrain evil and promote human flourishing from the womb to the tomb. All persons from the womb to the tomb. And anything else goes beyond this basic definition. When the government begins to pander to special interest groups for the purpose of getting elected, it has gone beyond the biblical purpose of government. And so the distinction between the role of the state and that of the Christian is this. Romans 12. We don't have time to look at Romans 12. Our call as Christians is to live according to love, not according to justice, though we can't divorce those two things. We also seek justice, but we live according to love. We're not the vigilante, in other words. We're not to repay anyone evil for evil, but we're to have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll reap coals of fire on his head. We're to live according to love. And the government is to function according to justice. 
So we do not separate these two, but that's a general way we could look at it. Of course, the role of the government is just, isn't just to punish evil. It is to promote goodness, human flourishing. And that's why we pay taxes. That's why taxes are necessary. So that we can ensure that the government functions in that way. And what's remarkable about this is that Paul has to admonish the Christians to pay taxes because those very tax dollars were being used to persecute them. Does that not hit close to home? Well, let's... I want to come to the second part of this message based on what we've just seen in Romans 3 or 13. There is one central aspect to Paul's argument here that I think is crucial as we go into the election day. If the state's authority, if the civil government's authority derives from God, then the government must operate and rule in a way that is consistent with God's justice. Avenging evil, restraining evil, and promoting human flourishing. Again, back to our original question. We've established that it's likely neither candidate is what we would want in a president. It's not what we'd want in our sons and daughters. Would you want either one of these candidates for your sons or daughters to be like them? No. So the question, and I believe this is the question, and you can disagree with this. Which platform? Of the two, most corresponds to Romans 13. That's the question I think that we have to ask. We know from candidate A what the platform is and what this candidate will do. We don't know from candidate B. That's another issue. But I was brought to some clarity on this from an article that was in the Washington Times by Paige Patterson, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, president of Southwestern. He refers to April the 30th, 1945. I remember it's April the 30th. That's Heather, Heather's and my anniversary. It's the day that Hitler committed suicide. And at this point, the German army knew that they were defeated. The Russians were closing in from the east and the um, United States was closing in from the West. The question is, who do you give yourself over to? It was a real dilemma. They were defeated. They didn't have a real good choice. But they knew if they gave themselves up to the Russian generals, what would happen to them? And it wasn't good. There was no mystery. But... They didn't know what, they would do, what would happen to them if they gave themselves up to the United States. But they had heard, and many of them had experienced kindness and justice from American soldiers. And so the majority of them submitted to the American troops. In the end, it was what they knew, not what they did not know, that forced their choice. And what about Tuesday? It is not for me to tell you who to vote for. 
It's a violation of that amendment. But with candidate A, we all know what will happen if elected. This person has made it very clear. We don't know for sure what will happen with candidate B. But the promises that we aren't sure of, I believe, are far more in line with Romans 13 than the promises of candidate A that we are sure of. And consider this. We're not just voting for the next four years. We're voting for an indefinite period of time. Let me give you some background on that statement. The most basic issue regarding any system of government is who will have the ultimate authority. And all the countries of the world have various opinions on that. In most of human history, monarchies have ruled, kings have ruled. And they got their throne by inheriting it. Firstborn sons, perhaps. In other countries, dictators have ruled. How does a dictator rule? He defeats the previous regime. Other countries, you have prime ministers. You have even what they call presidents who are elected by the people. But the U.S. was founded. And the U.S. decided that the highest authority in the nation would not be a human at all. But rather a document. And that document is called the Constitution. And all officials and all laws were subject to that Constitution. And so our nation was founded on a rule of law as opposed to the rule of men. That's what makes us unique. And to guarantee that every person and every group would be guarded from taking over the government and violating the Constitution at will, you have the solution being the separation of powers. If you took civics in high school, you know this. So the power of government was divided among various groups. You had the legislative who creates the laws. You have the executive branch headed by the president who enforces the laws. Then you had the judicial, which explains and interprets the laws. The latter that we know at the highest realm, the Supreme Court, we know as justices. They were to interpret and apply the Constitution. But they do not and are called not to make laws. And for most of the history of the United States, this has worked fairly well. But there was a weakness in the system. And the Supreme Court, in time, began to recognize that weakness and began to exploit that weakness. If a case came to the Supreme Court and the Constitution did not say what the Supreme Court justices wanted it to say, they would claim to discover new principles in the Constitution And no one would have the power to overrule them. No one. One example of this happened on January the 22nd, 1973. When Supreme Court justices announced 
its decision regarding abortion. In that case, Roe versus Wade. And this decision overturned the laws that restricted or prohibited abortion in all 50 states. But how could these justices, who are not called to create laws, they're called to interpret laws, how do they and could they claim that the Constitution guaranteed a woman a right to an abortion when it said nothing about abortion? The justices claimed they found that right contained in the right to privacy from the amendment, the 14th Amendment. But where is that in the 14th Amendment? It's not there. It does not exist. That amendment was ratified in 1868, and its central purpose was to protect former slaves and all their descendants. That they might have the rights of citizenship and equal protection. That's how they ruled in 1973. They went rogue, in other words. And the Supreme Court has issued more and more decisions of this type. And therefore has become the most powerful, the most highest governing authority in the nation. And as a result, we've become a different nation, a different government than what was originally established. You can't deny that. That's not even a political statement. It's a true statement. And since these Supreme Court justices are appointed for life, you get that, lifetime terms, they're accountable to no one. They have no accountability And now the most important laws in the land are not made by officials who are accountable to the people, like our senators and the Congress. But they're made by a group of justices who have never been elected by the people and have no accountability to them. And this means, and here it is, that limiting the power... Of the courts by appointing originalist judges is the most important issue facing our nation today. Now, what do I mean by originalist? It means that one believes that the original public meaning of the Constitution should be the guiding principle in interpretation, not the whims and beliefs of the justices. Candidate A, and this is not speculation, it's public. Candidate A will replace Justice Scalia, who is an originalist. Whether you liked him or not, he was an originalist. Candidate A will replace Justice Scalia with another activist judge. What is an activist judge or a justice? Someone who creates law? Someone who has a has a axe to grind, has an agenda, a political agenda. That would give the activists a five to four majority in the Supreme Court. And when Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, decides to go activist, he vacillates. You have a six to three in the Supreme Court. But that's not all. Justice Ginsburg is eighty three. And has had colon cancer. 
and pancreatic cancer and has a heart stent. Justice Kennedy is 80 years old and Justice Breyer is 78. The next president will likely nominate three to four Supreme Court justices, which will lock in the worldview trajectory for our country indefinitely. There's no going back. If candidate A is elected, judges will be appointed who support the execution and slaughter of the preborn. That's a reality. Candidate A not only supports that, but celebrates it up to the time of delivery. And supports it under the political rhetoric of caring for the health of women. And these same judges that will be appointed by candidate A will continue to attack the religious liberty of evangelicals. And the preaching of much of the Bible will be deemed as hate crimes. That's the reality. That's the trajectory we are on. And that's in conflict with 1 Timothy 2 where it says that government is to function so that we as believers may live peaceably and sensibly. And so that the gospel could go forth without restriction. With candidate B, we don't know. I am not a fan of candidate B. Candidate B is a wild card. But we do know that candidate B has promised to rely primarily on the counsel of the Federalist Society. The organization that promotes the original meaning of the Constitution. Candidate B has gone public on that. In fact... This candidate has released a list of seven judges who would be potential justices. A list that evangelical scholar Wayne Grudem calls a dream list. All of them pro-life. All of them seeking to push back Roe versus Wade. Or at least the regulations that minimize as much as possible abortion such as the necessity and prerequisite of sonograms. My prediction with many others is that this election will accelerate the postmodern trajectory if candidate A is elected. What do I mean by postmodern trajectory? It simply means this. There are no moral absolutes. I am my own meaning maker. That's called Atheistic existentialism. There's no ontological good. There's no ontological ethic. What is good for me at the moment is reality. That's the postmodern trajectory that we have been on for some time. I believe that candidate A will accelerate that to the point of no return. I also believe that It's very possible that if candidate B is elected, that could continue to happen as well. But maybe not. Maybe candidate B, if this candidate holds 
to the promises made will slow down that trajectory for a time. And I hope so for my children's sake. But let us remember as we close that there's no human government, no matter who your ideal candidate is, who can legislate true righteousness. Let's remember that. That's because the real problem is not political. The real human problem is theological. Harmardiological, if you want to say. The doctrine of sin. The real problem is the human heart enslaved to sin. And so no matter what government we have, all it can do is restrain. It cannot produce true righteousness. And that's why when we go to the polls on Tuesday, our hope is not in a political party. It's not in a candidate. It's in a king who's already won. A king who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, who has conquered sin and death, our real problem. And who's going to one day come again, and he's going to consummate. He's going to finish what he started 2,000 years ago. And that's what we celebrate today, no matter who you vote for. And that's what we celebrate at the table as well. And as we come to the table today, what an appropriate day to partake of the meal because this brings us back to reality. CNN and Fox News, that's not reality. That's all mythological. It has a termination date. Everything they say, this is reality. Because at the table, we're reminded of the story that will endure for all eternity. A story that is centered on a king. A king who came to overcome for us and our salvation. Uh, For those of you that are visiting with us, we would love for you to participate with us at the table. If you have been born again, born by the Spirit of God, and as the evidence of that regeneration, you have repented of your sins and you have trusted in Jesus Christ who lived the life we could not live as our substitute, died the death that we deserve. He took the judgment we deserve and then was raised from the grave for our justification. You have trusted in the Son and you are a member in good standing of a church that believes that way. You're in good standing with that church. We would invite you to participate with us at this table. So let's bow our heads.